You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Useless information. Hi, I'm Steve Silverman, and you're listening to a classic episode of the Useless Information Podcast. On July 11, 2009, I released this story titled The Day the U.S. Dropped Four H-Bombs on Spain. But since so many years have passed since I wrote that story, I could only remember vague details about it. So I pressed play and gave it a listen. And I must say, I really did enjoy the story, and I hope you do too. Welcome to the Useless Information Podcast, my collection of fascinating true stories from the flip side of three. My name is Steve Silverman, and today's story is on the day that the United States dropped four hydrogen bombs on Spain, believe it or not. But before we do that, let's start with today's question of the day. For today's question of the day, I thought I'd choose something that's a little bit more recent than most of the questions I ask. And it's one that appeared recently in a News Weekly magazine that I was reading. And it talked about a guy named Norman Brinker. He was a restaurant entrepreneur who recently died. And he is credited with inventing something very important to the restaurant industry. So my question for you today is, what did he invent? And to make it simpler, since you probably don't know the answer, I will give you a multiple choice question. So what did Norman Brinker invent? Was it one, the drive through window at the restaurant to speed up uh, your service? Two, the salad bar that everybody loves, you know, filling their plate up with? Was it three, the McDonald's filet fish sandwich, which is, you know, one of the most famous foods ever created? Or four, the really delicious Reese's peanut butter cup? Which one of those things did Norman Brinker actually invent? Was it one, the drive through window at restaurants? Two, the salad bar? Three, the McDonald's filet fish sandwich? Or four, the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup. And I'll leave you in suspense until the end of this podcast, and then I'll let you know the answer. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. And now for today's story on the day the United States dropped four hydrogen bombs on Spain. Now, while researching this story, I was actually quite surprised to find out that an estimated 50 nuclear warheads were lost during the Cold War all around the world. 
There's even documentation the U.S. lost 11 nuclear bombs in various accidents since 1945. Now, some of those bombs are actually truly lost. We have no clue where they are. Others have actually been located, but it's been determined that it's safer to let them lie where they are than to actually recover them. For example, there's been an H-bomb sitting somewhere off the coast of Savannah, Georgia since a mid-air collision way back in 1958. It's still sitting there somewhere off the coast of Savannah, Georgia. Just think about that. Now, for today's story, I decided to tell you the story of H-bombs are actually found. It's the day that we dropped, accidentally dropped, four H-bombs on Spain. Now, the plane involved in this accident was a B-52G U.S. Air Force bomber that had originally taken off from the Seymour Johnson Air Force Base in North Carolina and flew towards the European borders with the Soviet Union. Now, you don't need to be a rocket scientist to realize if you're going to fly from North Carolina and North America over Europe all the way to the edge of the Soviet Union and then turn around and come back without stopping, you're going to need a lot of fuel. And because this was such an incredibly long distance, two mid-air refuelings were scheduled over Spain. Basically, the B-52 would fly from North Carolina, refuel over Spain that's in mid-air, continue onto the edge of the Soviet Union, turn around, refuel over Spain, and then return back to North Carolina. And it was on the way back on January 17, 1966, that this, uh, this accident actually occurred. While refueling at an altitude of 31,000 feet, the B-52 collided with the KC-135 tanker plane. As you can imagine, an enormous explosion occurred and all four men on the tanker plane were killed almost instantly. And then also three of the seven crew members on the B-52 were killed. Of the four surviving men, one was burned by the explosion and three parachuted to safety several miles out to sea. They were very lucky. Now, serious accidents and death are never, ever taken lightly by the military, and I think that's been shown over and over again throughout uh, history. But they had an even bigger problem on their hands this time. That's because this B-52 carried four one-and-a-half megaton hydrogen bombs, which are about 100 times more powerful than the one that was dropped on Hiroshima during World War II. This was a big problem. The first three bombs were actually located very quickly. They were found within a 24-hour period around a small fishing village known as Palomares, which is on the uh, southeastern coast of Spain. But the fourth one was much more elusive, and we'll talk about that in a bit, and that's actually the main focus of the story. The first bomb was found actually fully intact, and there's not a lot of a lot to add to that, so we're just going to move on. But bombs two and three were much worse off, because whether you know this or not, Hydrogen bombs actually contain non-nuclear explosives, conventional explosives in them, and that's needed to trigger the nuclear blast. Basically, the conventional explosive goes off, that starts the fission reaction, the fission reaction creates very high temperatures needed for a fusion reaction. Now, if you didn't follow that, don't really worry about it. But what you do need to know is that when these bombs hit the ground, the conventional explosives went off and spewed nuclear material, plutonium, over 558 acres of land. The United States government ended up spending $80 million to clean up this mess. They had to remove some 1,500 tons of contaminated soil and the tomato plants that were growing in that soil. It was all placed into steel drums, and then it was hauled off to a nuclear waste dump in South Carolina. Uh, you never know what's in your backyard. And now for the fourth and final bomb. An intensive search of 
as you can imagine, was carried out, but all they found was its parachute. And since the bomb was nowhere to be found on land, the military reached the conclusion that it must have been carried out to sea. It was also learned that a local fisherman named Francisco Simo Orts, my wife's been helping a little bit with my Spanish pronunciation there, so I think I'm still off. But anyway, Francisco Simo Orts, he claimed to have witnessed that the bomb landed in the Mediterranean. And that helped the military uh, you know, narrow down its point to impact somewhat, but it was still a vast sea. The Navy assigned some 150 divers to search to a depth of about 350 feet, but there was no sign of the bomb. Ultimately, they brought in the Alvin Deep Sea Submersible to search for it, and they found the bomb on March 17th. Now keep in mind, the plane crash occurred on January 17th. This is two months later. They found the bomb sitting on the edge of an underwater canyon at a depth of 2,550 feet. That's much greater than the 350 feet that the divers were capable of going to. But finding it and actually retrieving it are two totally different stories. And in their attempt to bring it up from the 2,550 foot depth, they lost it. And it fell even farther down into the canyon. So they bring back in the Alvin submersible and on April 2nd, they located it once again. But now it wasn't located at 2,550 feet of depth. Now it was 29,800 feet depth. That's more than 10 times the distance that it was originally found at. Incredible depths. So they had to bring in an unmanned torpedo recovery vehicle that was called Curve. And that's spelled C-U-R-V. There's no E at the end. Curve. Anyway, Curve was brought in and was actually able to bring it up to a depth of 100 feet, at which point the Navy divers attached cables to it and finally brought it to the surface. Amazingly, the bomb was still fully intact and there was no leakage of its radioactive cargo. But that's not the end of the story. Let's zoom forward to today. And it turns out that scientists have detected higher levels of radioactivity in the Western Mediterranean plankton and other wildlife that's in the region. Now, some people have suggested that there was a fifth bomb. The United States had five bombs on there. They never found the fifth. And that's where the radioactive material is coming from. But there really is no evidence to support that. All the B-52s at that time carried four bombs. So assuming there's no fifth bomb, where is this radioactive material coming from? The answer is actually quite simple. It's believed that the contaminated soil from the impact site has been washing toward the Mediterranean Sea. Basically, every time it rains, you get runoff, and that carries radioactive material down to the Mediterranean. Luckily, studies have shown that plutonium does not accumulate in greater concentrations in the fish that eat the plankton, unlike other chemicals. So there's been no known health problems reported to this date. Now, as a side note, Francisco Simo Orts, the local fisherman, you know, the guy who witnessed the bomb enter the water, he claimed salvage rights for the hydrogen bomb that was pulled up. You see, under admiralty law, uh, the person that identifies the location of a salvage vessel usually receives an award. Usually it's 1% or 2%, and it can be as much as 50% of the value of whatever is found. Now you can imagine on a $2 billion hydrogen bomb, we're not talking about chump change here. It was settled out of court for an undisclosed sum, so we don't know how much he got. Maybe it was a dollar, maybe it was a million, maybe it was $10 million. We really don't know. Useless, useful. I'll leave that for you to decide. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. 
Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And now a few words from our retro sponsor. Your sponsor. Sometime when you're shopping for the house, ask your grocer what single item housemakers are most particular about. Nine out of ten times, his answer will probably be soap. And he'll be right because no one single item is more important to a well-regulated household and to the housewife herself. I take clean soap, for instance. It serves in about half the time. Well, that's time saved on wash day or doing the dishes. Clean soap does its job thoroughly, in some cases 15% more effectively by actual comparison than ordinary soap due to an entirely new chemical formula used in its manufacture. And clean soap's a lifesaver for you housewives who like to keep your hands white and soft after the washing's done. Because, remember, clean soap is also just as good a toilet soap as money can buy. Try it for a dime. It'll be the best and biggest ten cents worth of fictitious soap you ever bought. That's clean, K-L-E-A-N, clean soap. Wow, that sounds like a great product. I really want to get my hands on some of that clean soap. Really get clean with it, right? Too bad it's not a real product. That's actually a dummy commercial. It was used to show sponsors what their ads could actually accomplish. It's also used in uh, pilots as a filler to show where the commercial would go and to indicate to the sponsors where their ad may appear in the show. So it's not a real ad, but it is kind of cool. And now for a few totally useless yet totally true tidbits from history. It's time for what I like to call News of the Weird Past. And our first story goes back to June 27, 1901. It was reported on Park Row in New York City that a newsboy named Patsy Mulligan had sold out of his newspapers early and decided to take a bath in the City Hall Park Fountain. So he rips off his clothes, he jumps in, and all of a sudden he realizes that his clothes are stolen. So he gets out and he starts asking all the other newsboys if anyone has seen who took his clothes. Of course, they all said it wasn't me, and they all started laughing, and a crowd began to assemble around this nude newsboy. Luckily, a man came along, took off his coat, and offered it to him to cover up. Our next little tidbit goes back to August 6th of 1903, where it's reported that a mail clerk named Thomas Blake, who worked in the Newark post office, had been reported missing and assumed drowned uh, when he had gone fishing. But it turns out that he and three other companions had been in an open boat and the rudder broke, and they drifted farther and farther out to sea until they were rescued by a sailing vessel. But the sailing vessel did, the people on the sailing vessel, the sailors did not allow them on unless they agreed to work their passage back to shore, which they did, of course. And our last little tidbit is more modern. It's from June 27, 1960, where it's reported that in Gooding, Idaho, the state school for the deaf and blind finally got around to presenting Mrs. Ted Bidolph with her $5 prize for naming their monthly magazine The Optimist. What's the little twist in this? Well, it was 40 years after she named it, they finally gave her her prize. And now the answer to today's question of the day. And I asked about restaurant entrepreneur Norman Brinker and what he invented. And I gave you four choices. They were the drive through window, the salad bar, the McDonald's filet fish sandwich, and the Reese's peanut butter cup. 
Let's start with the wrong answers. The first wrong answer was the drive through window. That actually was at the In-N-Out Burger Joint in Baldwin, California in 1948. He did not invent the McDonald's Filet-O-Fish sandwich. That was invented by a guy named Lou Groan in 1962 at his McDonald's because it was in a Catholic neighborhood. And then uh, it, he also did not invent the Reese's Peanut Butter Cup, which was invented in 1928 by Harry Reese. Big shock there. In fact, what he is credited with inventing is the salad bar, which he put into his steak and ale restaurants in the 1960s. Uh, at the time of his death, his company owned about 1,700 restaurants, so he was not a poor person. He owned companies like Steak and Ale, Bennigan's, Chili's, Romano's, Macaroni Grill, and the list goes on and on and on. Very, very successful man when he passed on. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's story on the day that the United States dropped four H-bombs on Spain, as well as the question of the day on the invention of the salad bar, the news of the weird past tidbits, and of course that fake retro sponsor for Clean Soap. If you'd like to read more true stories just like this, please be sure you get a copy of one of my books there, Einstein's Refrigerator and Lindbergh's Artificial Heart. Both are written by me, Steve Silverman, and they're available from your local bookseller online and from your local library. If you'd like to contact me for some reason, simply drop me an email at useless at steve.silverman.name. That's useless at steve.silverman.name. Or you can visit my website, which is uselessinformation.org. That's uselessinformation.org. Lastly, I would appreciate if you could log into iTunes, as I've said in the past, and leave some positive comments to help increase the number of listeners to this podcast. Well, thanks again for listening, and hopefully you'll tune in the next time. Bye. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun, Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that because you're already listening to a podcast.